Well, this morning we're going to be talking about clean. Yes, hygiene clean, but also this cleaning that goes a little bit deeper than skin deep. Maybe uh, Jesus' words might be something closer to a clean that runs more heart deep. So a little bit different. So we're going to begin by comparing my version of clean with Katie's version of clean. (laughs) We're going to move into comparing Jesus' version of clean with the scribes and Pharisees' version of clean. And then we're going to finish with a couple suggestions for getting ourselves scrubbed up from the inside out. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit that as your scriptures are read, as your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you say to us today. Amen. Well, clean is a big deal in my household, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, But what I've noticed over the years is that my version of clean and Katie's version of clean are really, really just vastly different. (laughs) Like, my version of clean is really orderly, um, but it's not very sanitary. So I like everything in its place, in a place for everything. I don't care if it's actually clean. I want it to look clean, right? Katie cares less about the appearance of clean and actually wants it really clean, clean, like germ-free clean, right? Like wiping the whole house with Clorox wipes when somebody is sick clean, you know? Like really, really clean. Um, So our versions of clean are totally different. Like my version of clean looks pretty good, uh, but it's not really clean, whereas Katie's version may not look quite as neat, but it's much cleaner and much more sanitary than my version, right? Now, see if we knew this. I did not know this. Did you know that it took real social reform in this country to get people to wash their hands and take a bath? I'm serious. Frank? Yeah? Somebody knows this? I did not know this, right? The prevailing wisdom on hygiene up through the early part of the 19th century was that submerging your body in water was thought to be distinctly unhealthy, unhealthy and a dangerous thing to do. Okay? No joke. Um, And so the thinking was that by clogging your pores with dirt and oil, you were actually keeping disease and germs out, right? Um, Like, logically, this makes a little bit of sense. And so I was researching this, having some fun, and I learned that Elizabeth I was considered to be kind of a neat freak. She made herself take a bath one time a month. Louis XIII didn't take a single bath until he was seven years old. (laughs) Think about that for those of us with kids. Oh my God. <laughs> Scary thought, right? And so this is a cool story. In 1847, there was this Hungarian physician. He has a great name. I'll see if I can say it. Ignaz Semmelweis. Anyone ever heard of this guy? Okay, this is some really good stuff. He was the guy who first proposed that, you should, that doctors should wash their hands before treating their patients, all right? Um, He was working in this hospital in Vienna, and he was working in a hospital where there were two maternity wards, one for the wealthy and the other one for the working class. And so when he was looking at this, it turns out that the death rates were actually much lower in the working class ward than they were in the ward for the wealthy. So this doctor was trying to figure out why. And then he discovered the reasons. The physicians who were attending the wealthy were working on cadavers and they were going back and forth between delivering babies and working on cadavers without washing their hands, right? So this guy points this out, and he says, we need to start washing our hands before delivering babies. And then when he suggested what's obvious to us today, you want to know what happened to him? Ridiculed, mocked, got fired, and he ended up dying in an insane asylum. This is no joke. This guy got totally got the business, right? All for suggesting 
that maybe physicians should wash their hands before delivering babies after working with cadavers. I found that story to be pretty cool. In our text today, what we're going to see is the Pharisees and Jesus, they're both clean freaks too, but they're very different. They each have their own unique way. Um, And so listen for these two ways of what clean is as we listen to Mark 7. Here we go. Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions they observe, the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandments of God and hold on to human tradition." Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is written from the human heart that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. And so this passage represents the longest running conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark. It's also one of the most poignant tongue lashings that Jesus ever gives out. And so the conflict uh, between Jesus and the uh, Pharisees and the scribes, by the way, these guys probably traveled upwards of 90 miles to confront Jesus on this issue from Jerusalem. Just think about that for a second. Uh, 90 miles then is a little different than it is today. And so they battle over two points. The first is cleanliness, and the second is tradition. These are the two points of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. What makes a person clean or unclean? And does human tradition really have any authority over us? Does it have anything to say? And so the whole argument gets started because Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before eating. Anyone in here ever gotten in trouble for not washing your hands before eating? Yeah? Anyone willing to admit it? Yeah, like, sometimes I still do, right? Um, Wow. And so, like, when I was a kid, that was a big no-no in my family. You know, you you could not eat in my household unless you washed your hands. And so I remember every single evening was the same. My mom would yell out from the kitchen, Wash your hands, dinner is ready. The first thing, my brother and I would run, we'd wash our hands, and we'd go running into the kitchen because we wanted to eat. Um, And so hand-washing before meals was also a big deal uh, in Judaism. After the Jews had returned from exile, they're now rubbing elbows with this unclean, Gentile, non-Jewish culture, so this ritual cleanliness took on greater significance. They needed to find ways to try to remain pure in this what they considered to be this defiled culture. And so have you ever known someone that's just obsessed with clean? Like they wash their hands after touching anything in a public space? Or they carry hand sanitizer around with them everywhere and they're constantly washing their hands? Like I have a number of friends like this, right? 
if you understand that, you understand the Pharisees. The Pharisees are clean obsessed. There are a few interesting things here. The cleanliness doesn't have anything to do with hygiene. It has everything to do with ritual. So it's a little bit different in that regard. And so the list of things that were unclean to the Pharisees is a mile long. right? If I read this list, your, your heads would just spin. You, you wouldn't make any sense. But the thing you have to understand, if you can understand this, you can understand their list. Objects and or people were thought to transfer their defilement to the other. So simple. If you touch an unclean object or a person, the defilement from that unclean object or a person, you're taking that on. Okay? And so you're either going to have to do one of two things. If it's a really mild offense, you're going to have to wash your hands. If it's a serious defilement, you're going to have to take a full ritual bath. So most Jews were washing their hands before eating. So naturally the Pharisees come and they want to know why are Jesus and his disciples disregarding the tradition of the elders by eating without washing their hands, which leads to point of contention number two, tradition. So the tradition of the elders, we just need to understand what this is. It's the oral tradition. The Pharisees promoted the idea that Moses received two laws, the written Ten Commandments and the oral tradition now called the Mishnah. So you would have the Torah and the Mishnah. The Mishnah contains the teachings of the rabbis from Moses to Jesus' day, right? And so the Mishnah is called, they call it a fence around the Torah because the Torah tells you what God commanded, but it doesn't always tell you how to live by it. There's all this gray area. And so the Pharisees, the rabbis, were trying to take out the gray area. So in infinite detail, they tell you how to keep God's commandments, in real-life circumstances. And this just runs on and on. It's the most incredibly boring thing you could ever possibly read, right? It just, it's, it's painful. And so when it comes to ritual cleanliness, Jesus basically argues, this is, this is my paraphrase, dirt, God made dirt and dirt don't hurt, right? That's like, that's my paraphrase of Jesus. All right, I took a few liberties for sure, uh, but you get the ideal uh, idea that defilement of a person doesn't come from the outside. That's really what Jesus says. He asserts that defilement comes not from external things, but from deep within the human heart. And secondly, when it comes to tradition, Jesus says something else. He says that the tradition of the elders is just a human tradition that's actually causing people to abandon the intent of God's commandments in the first place. So Jesus is saying that your oral tradition, there's nothing bad, inherently bad about it, it's actually getting in the way of people uh, understanding and living out the intention of God's word. So the Pharisees, this is, this is my language, the Pharisees are majoring in minors, right? They're making mountains out of molehills. They're whatever other cliche idioms you want to use. And so I was thinking about this. I think this is a big deal. My money says that this is one of the biggest reasons why people don't want anything to do with the church today, Right? Because we never major in minors in the church, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, really, this is a really serious point. Like, how long would the list be if we named all the ways that the church has done the exact same thing? Elevated peripheral issues above the intent of Scripture. And it's like, when I got to this point, I was like, maybe we need to listen to this blistering critique of Jesus a little bit more closely and not hear it necessarily said to someone else but said to us. And so Jesus has a word for people who major in minors, and it came right out of the text. He calls them, anyone? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. 
This is Jesus' definition of what a hypocrite is. It's a theater term, right? And it's a term that means to play a part on a stage. You know, the history of this word. And so Greek actors on stage, they wore these masks. Those are a little scary. Dustin and I were looking for the right ones. They're all kind of scary. Uh, yeah, they, they were. Right, we didn't find a happy one anywhere, so <laughs> this, this is the one. Um, and when they're playing a role, they would hold a different mask up to show which role they were playing. So they had these masks, right? And so they're, uh, the masks kind of depict the role that they're impersonating. So the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is saying, you're not, you're not leaders, you're actors. You're not leading, you're acting, Right? You're playing a part. And so then Jesus really kind of lays into them a little bit. He uses this quotation from the prophet Isaiah indicating that they talked up a big game, but they weren't backing it up with actions. And the part that hurts the most is he says, because their hearts were far from God. It's like, ooh, can you imagine those words being spoken uh, to Jesus, by Jesus, to, to you? Um, it's, he's hard on them. And so he's trying to say that the problem isn't coming in contact with these unclean things. Jesus says it's from within the human heart that evil intentions come. And so it's just like Jesus' big redirect in the passage. It's what he really wants the crowd that he's speaking to to understand. He says, you want to know where evil comes from? Then look within, because that's where all the dirt in our lives comes from, not from the outside. And so I learned something while I was studying this passage that really got me thinking. It's like, we're really good at pointing out the flaws, uh, the dirt, the sin in other people. It's something that uh, Christians are, are pretty good at. We excel at that. It's easy. It's easy to do. But in answer to the question, where does evil come from? What if we answered the question differently? What if we said something like, evil comes from deep within the person that I really dislike, and it also comes from deep within myself? What if we answered that question like that? How would it change, say, our relationship with non-believers in the world? If we did less finger-pointing and more looking in the mirror, we'll get to that here uh, more in a second. And so Jesus lists out some of the evils that come from within. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just kind of two categories, one category of six actions and one that deal with six attitudes. Um, And this point is really simple. He's trying to say that look like no hand-washing, no body bath, no pumice stone, no gritty soap. Nothing that you can use can deal with the problem. And it reminded me of a couple of years ago, Eric Lindroth and I were backpacking and we were swimming in this Tar Creek in the Sespe back here behind Ojai. And Tar Creek is aptly named because the tar seeps, natural tar seeps from the ground into the river. And when you swim in it, sometimes you get some on you. And when we got out of the water, we were covered from head to toe with tar, right? Now, you ever tried soap and water on tar? <laughs> see where I'm going with this, right? Like, you're going to need to scrape it off or you're going to need to use the right cleaning agent to get clean, right? We didn't have any baby oil, which would have been perfect. Um, So what do we use? The gas from our backpacking stove, right? So (laughs) I'm sure that did wonders for our health. (laughs) Sorry, Michelle. (laughs) We probably didn't tell you that part. Um, And so if you don't have the right thing to get clean, you're in trouble, you know? And so the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that their solution doesn't address the part that needed to be cleaned the most. They were doing a great job of cleaning their hands before meals, which is wonderful, uh, but they weren't dealing with the thing that really needed to be cleaned, which was the heart. 
And so it's not the hands, but the heart that needed to be clean. So we'll finish with just a couple thoughts on uh, what do we do with this teaching. And the first thing is, is a hard one. I think Jesus wants us to not point the finger, but look in the mirror. It's easy to point out the evil attitudes and actions of other people. It's a lot more difficult task to take a look in the mirror and admit that the enemy is actually, you can think of it two ways, in us or is us, that we're the problem. It's hard to admit that we are our own biggest problem, and our biggest problems aren't out there, but right here. And Jesus seems to be saying that we need to get this light out and shine it deep within us so that we can see ourselves for who we really are, people in need of God's grace. And so when I was thinking about this, I'm like, this um, has really interesting side benefit too. When you ask non-Christians, which I do this kind of stuff, because I like to, why are you not interested in the church? You know what they say every time? Two words. Christians are hypocritical and judgmental. Hypocritical and judgmental. Almost everyone I've ever asked that question to has said one of those two words, right? They'll say, I'm not interested because Christians are hypocrites. They're judgmental. What's the word that Jesus used for the scribes and Pharisees? People putting on a mask, playing a part, right? People pointing out the problems with others but not dealing with the one that's most important. And so what if we were to take off that mask, right? What if we were to do less finger pointing and more looking in the mirror? I wonder if that's not something that would change people's perceptions of followers of Christ and and Christ's church, right? To take a good look in the mirror first. And I wonder what that would do. It's an interesting thought. The second is just to more closely examine our own church practices, right? Because I was asking this question, is it possible that we as a church could miss God's heart and intention because we too are capable of elevating human tradition over what's most important, over the mission of God. Of course we're capable of this, right? We're people. We're all capable of this. And so a great question for lunch would be something like, how do we as a church, how do we major in minors? How do we get it wrong, right? Or to look at it another way, what church practices keep us so busy that we actually lose touch with God's heart or God's mission? Really important questions to be constantly thinking about as a church. And then finally, the last one, consider placing yourself on the heart transplant waiting list. And so I find it fascinating that Jesus' list of evils of the heart that he mentions, they're all these sins of desire and consumption. This one got me thinking a little bit. Like we can so easily become insatiable consumers. We can consume people, we can consume pleasure, we can consume things. And all this consumption, what does it do? It forms and shapes our hearts. This is what Jesus is addressing. And so there's a little bit of a danger here, and I use myself as a negative example, which I'm fond of doing, because it's true. When I thought about this, I'm like, one of my biggest problems is Amazon Prime. Anybody? All right? So to know, let's know where I came from. I came from a few years ago being a person who refused to buy a single thing online. I'm only going to shop local. I'm only going to buy things when I go into a store myself. Like two years later, I'm an Amazon Prime junkie. <laughs> like I have a problem, you know? I'm so hooked that now I'll rarely go to the store. Why would I? 
In 10 seconds, I can order what I want, and in two days, it's delivered to my doorstep. You want to hear something? This is true. It's funny, and it's true. When I was writing these exact words, a UPS delivery truck <laughs> drove right in front of my house, and I picked my head up from my computer, and I just shook my head. Like, See what I mean? And what was it delivering? It was delivering something to me from Brian. You know what I mean? It's like, my desire, this is, the, this is the serious part, right? My desire to consume stuff is a problem. Uh, but is Amazon my problem? Of course not. It's not Amazon's fault that I'm an idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> but to think about it this way, Amazon Prime has actually shaped my heart. This is the issue. It has fundamentally changed something about me. The prophet Ezekiel wrote these words that fit right in line with where Jesus is. He wrote, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I believe that Jesus wants to clean our hearts. Maybe that biblical metaphor is better. The whole new heart, the heart transplant, maybe that's a better metaphor. I don't know. But I used to have this question asked to me all the time by parents back in my youth ministry days. They would say, all the time, their kid would have a problem, and they'd say, Rob, I really need you to fix my kid. <laughs> like, I mean, if I had, like, a hundred bucks, I'd be a millionaire for every time I got asked that question. Um, and my answer was always the same. I would say, I can't fix your kid, but I do know the God who can, right? But it's not, it's not me. Because God changes hearts. God transforms lives, Right? And God changes hearts to, uh, to something totally different. God can change a heart to desire God's will and God's ways, a heart to connect to God's own heart and connect to God's mission in the world. So we do these couple things. We confess. We take a good, long look in the mirror, right? And we deal with the corruption of our own hearts before pointing the fingers. Point the finger if you must, but don't do it until after you've taken a good look at yourself. And then the second part is we just we point then in a, in a good way to God's incredible love and mercy because when we confess we're wiped clean, we get a little reboot, we're forgiven. Um, and maybe what better way uh, to transition from this to here than to think about these things? Let's pray. Gracious God, we desire clean hands before we eat our lunch. We desire a clean heart so that we might serve you better. God, clean us up and send us back out. And we pray this in your son's name.